0: Chapter Thirteen: of The Psychology of Religion by Edwin Diller Starbuck. This Livervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: The Abnormal Aspect of Conversion. No two persons will agree upon the limit at which normal religious experiences pass over into pathological. Where the line of demarcation will fall depends largely on one's general attitude toward religion, and on one's temperamental attitude toward human experiences, which allows them a wide or narrow range. There are the alienists, too, who are constantly on the lookout for some abnormal tendency and, consequently, are sure to find it. According to their standard, the whole conversion phenomena is to be regarded as abnormal. Dr. Boris Sidis, for example, in his Psychology of Suggestion remarks in regard to the article on which his study is a revision, What Mr. Starbuck does not realize is the fact that it is not healthy, normal life that one studies in sudden religious conversions, but the phenomena of revival insanity. In the kindly review of a subsequent article on religious growth, the Philadelphia Medical Journal says, Dr. Starbuck himself does not apparently realize the full force of his work in the domain of psychiatry, but it is especially to this aspect of it that we have been attracted. In the point of view of this journal, what we have termed the sense of sin would be more fairly regarded as a pathological phenomena, it should never be forgotten however that this form of psychologia or mental pain the sense of sin from whatever cause is the fundamental lesion in perhaps the largest group of cases of mental alienation in example, melancholia the alienist thinks in terms of psychiatry he casts his pathological net in anything sufficiently exaggerated above commonplaceness so that it cannot slip through the meshes he claims as his religionists on the other hand are liable to have an apperceptive faculty which colors whatever happens in connection with the nominally religious as a divine manifestation. No excesses of excitement, no hypnosis, no diseased imaginings, provided they have the cloak of religion, are too extreme to be regarded by certain persons as normal and healthy. It is not my purpose in the present volume to try to discriminate between normal and abnormal religious experiences. In the preceding chapters I have taken the records regarded by the subjects as normal and studied them, first among themselves to get a larger conception of their nature and then to see how they fit in with other facts in human life and to what extent they are interpretable in terms of accepted physiological and psychological laws. In this chapter, likewise, I shall take certain experiences which are looked upon by the respondents as abnormal and see how they fit in with the supposedly normal phenomena, and what possibilities they expose for thwarting the ends of religious growth. The testimony of the respondents, then, is our standard of judging the two classes of normal and abnormal. This is by no means a satisfactory test, but the only one at present available. There is no more important question, from both a scientific and a practical standpoint, than that of determining in what persons and under what circumstances a sudden religious awakening is desirable. The ultimate test, doubtless, will be, does it contribute in the long run, in the individual and in groups of individuals, to permanent growth? The settlement of such question far exceeds the maturity of the psychology of religion. The hope at present is to make clear certain plain laws of growth and to disclose the pitfalls so that it may be possible to apply oneself more tactfully to the cultivation of spiritual life. In the attempt to establish a standard of judgment for the abnormal elements in religion, there are two extremes which should be avoided on the one hand that of the thoroughgoing alienists who brands everything that rises above the dead level of experience as pathological and who for instance convicts wagner of megalomania and isben of egomania and looks upon any experience which takes account in a vital way of the blackness of sin or the joy which accompanies religious insight simply as mental aberration and on the other hand that of the radical religionist who looks upon the most violent excesses as a manifestation of the spirit provided only it be carried out in the name of religion one of the most commonly accepted principles of mental activity is that any normal process if freed from its inhibitions and carried to an extreme becomes pathological it is of extreme importance in considering anything so complex and delicate as a religious instinct especially when it is liable to be wrought upon vigorously as is done in the crisis called conversion. To stop and observe some of the danger points at which people may easily be led beyond the limits of the normal and thereby suffer irretrievable loss. The most glaring danger is found in the emotionalism and excitement of religious revivalism. The effect is to induce a state of mere feeling which, when it has passed, leaves no spiritual residuum. To drive persons to irrational conduct, so that when the reaction sets in, they reject not only their first profession, but the whole of religion. This cannot be better illustrated than by quoting from two or three typical records. The following was written by a person who has since worked his way to a positive religious experience and is an influential pastor in a large city. I automatically went to church and Sunday school, with the general attitude toward religion of indifference. The forces which led to my conversion at fifteen seemed to me now hypnotic in character. My will seemed wholly at the mercy of others, particularly of the revivalist M. There was absolutely no intellectual element. I did not think of dogma or doctrine. It was pure feeling. There followed a period of ecstasy. I was bent on doing good, and was eloquent in appealing to others. The state of moral exaltation did not continue. It was followed by a complete relapse from orthodox religion. I look back upon my experience now with shame and repugnance. It was an unnatural state and could not be maintained. Here is another instance to represent many of its kind of a woman, now a teacher in one of the prominent colleges, who succumbed to the irresistible force of the ensemble and was forced to simulate religion without processing it. I had been carefully trained and had received more than an ordinary amount of religious and biblical instruction. The winter that I was eleven a series of revival meetings was being held to which i was taken i attended some half-dozen without receiving any impression at the very last meeting the usual appeal was made for those to rise who wished to be on the lord's side there was considerable excitement in the midst of it i rose and remained standing i think i had no conscious motive in taking this step i was simply carried away by the excitement and did not know what i did if any influence came in it was love for my mother, who sat beside me, bowed in prayer. I felt that she wished me to rise, and yet the knowledge was something I felt after rather than before I rose. I was much excited, and became hysterical under the emotions aroused, and under the prevailing excitement. I was taken apart with others, and talked with, and as a result joined the P. Church the next Sunday. The experiences had been unnatural, and therefore could not last. I lived for a short time, perhaps six months under an unnatural excitement and then relapsed into a state of utter indifference i feel now that the result of the conversion was bad for i felt that i had done all that was to be done and therefore made no effort to grow and i may say i lived a lie for i knew i ought not to belong to the church yet because it was easy to say nothing i let everyone believe i was truly a converted christian i remained in this state until my sophomore year in college when I accepted with some degree of intellectual understanding the chief doctrines of the Christian Church, and can now call myself converted, though I was not before. In producing such results, the influence of the mob mind is an important factor. The force of the popular mind in religious movements is not to be distinguished from its exercise in political campaigns, in battle, in mobs and strikes and the like. Everyone who is familiar with the methods of revivalists know how perfectly they coincide with those of the leaders of crowds described by M. Le Bon. When it is proposed to imbue the mind of a crowd with ideas and belief, with modern social theories, for instance, the leaders have recourse to different expedients. The principle of them are three in number, and clearly defined, affirmation, repetition, and contagion. Affirmation, pure and simple, kept free of all reasoning and all proof, is one of the surest means of making an idea enter the mind of crowds. Affirmation, however, is no real influence unless it be repeated, and so far as possible in the same terms. The influence of repetition is due to the fact that the repeated statement is embedded in the long run in the profound regions of our unconscious selves in which the motives of our actions are forged. When an affirmation has been sufficiently repeated and there is unanimity in its repetition, what is called a current of opinion is formed and the powerful mechanism of contagion intervenes. The influence of religious leaders and of mob-mind in arousing great movements is not so strong at the present time as formerly. Earlier in the present century it was not uncommon for the contagion to be so striking as to induce marked physiological symptoms in entire audiences. They were often seized in mass with the jerks, in epileptic condition of the muscular system or by trances, in which the muscles were completely relaxed or permanently rigid, the trans phenomena are not infrequent in certain localities at the present time. From the psychophysiological standpoint, the results of mob action seem to be to produce a relaxed state in the cerebral centers, which frees the lower centers from the inhibitory control of the higher, and thus renders the mind more suggestible. It is to be noted, accordingly, that the will is paralyzed, as in the two instances just quoted, in extreme cases, there is no thought of dogma or doctrine, as would be in the relaxed condition of the cortical centers which are the seat of intellectual functions. It will be recalled that in normal conversions, the conscious element was relatively small. Shouting and springing over benches in which Negroes often indulge, the sense of walking on air, rising without knowing it, and the like, seemed to indicate the unchecked activity of the lower centers. The sensuality which sometimes breaks out in the midst of great religious excitement seems to show the same thing. Relaxation of the control of the higher centers over the lower. To be sure, the conscious element is always to some degree present. There is no suggestion without consciousness, says Mole. But the quality of consciousness is doubtless of the kind Dr. Scott attributes to the art psychosis. It is essentially a state of ecstasy with a tendency to produce a slight obsessional climax in a certain direction. This climax is, as already observed, in the direction determined by the drift of the unconscious factors of the psychic life, and by the force of suggestion at the time. Trance states would seem to be the result of an overemphasis in irradiation of the relaxation and anesthesia which begin in their higher centers and work until the consciousness is obliterated and only the muscular centers are active, thus producing a cataleptic condition in the body. Whatever be the explanation of the phenomena, they are sufficiently striking to emphasize both the strength and danger of religious excitement. The dangers of mob mind are even greater in this fear than in almost any other. The strength of concerted action and contagion in politics or war is that something is to be done. A majority vote is to be cast, or a city to be taken, but in the spiritual life not only is the right emotional attitude necessary, which the voter or warrior must possess, but there must be some rational sanction of conduct. The warrior has the fallen city walls afterward as a token that his action was worthwhile, although in the heat of battle he may have been simply driven on by the excitement of the occasion. The supposed convert, who has been overwrought, if he has not maturity enough to judge results by spiritual standards, or, which is saying the same thing, if he was not ripe for the proposed change of heart, comes to himself on a barren plain, and wonders what it was all about. The danger is not simply that nothing of permanent good comes to the person whose feelings are too highly wrought upon, but that positive injury results from such measures. Some persons rebel against the whole institution which employs them. One young man, whose feelings have been worked up by a storytelling revivalist calls it a gold-brick deal, and remarks, it almost made me an infidel. I have hardly been in a church since. The following notes were written by an observer of an excited revival, in which the meetings were held until early morning. Some persons, in the midst of the excitement, lay prostrate on the floor, one crawled on hands and knees about the aisles, and some went into trance. I know that one young man, who was a teacher in our school, went to the board soon afterward. The writer is a member of the school board, and told them that he was very sorry for and ashamed of the part he had taken, and that he was not fully himself at the time. He was a good man before, and is still an active, discreet Christian worker. The seventeen-year-old girl I spoke of, who lay in what they called a trance for nineteen hours, has never been able to take more than one study in school since. She is very nervous and does not seem to have grown religiously as far as an outsider can see. Three of those who took a very prominent part in the meeting seem to have grown cold and are seldom at a place of worship. The rest of those who are active seem about as they did before, except A.L. She does seem to be growing religiously, but I fancy those meetings were not the cause of her growth, nor were they the beginning of it. The president of a college writes, Once at W., occurred one of those overheated revivals. Under the pressure, scores made professions loud and high. Today, the effects have largely disappeared. I once witnessed a religious awakening of a milder type, wherein a whole neighborhood was transformed. Scarcely one who professed ever renounced his profession or ceased to lead a godly life. A pastor furnishes these statistics of the results in a single community, of revivals which were conducted by an imported evangelist. It will have been already observed that one of the forces working in revivals is that of suggestion and hypnotism. The tactics used by the revivalists are in many respects similar to those of the hypnotist. Not to speak of the series of meetings, with their constant reiteration of the fact of sin and the need of salvation, or the stimulus of the crowd, and the force of example which tend to subdue the will of the most recalcitrant, a glance at the methods employed by certain evangelists of influence in the seeker while at the altar are significant. The preacher kneels with the person under conviction, often with laying on of hands, and repeats over and over in a slow, monotonous tone, full of feeling, such phrases as, Christ is knocking at the door of your heart. If you only have faith in his power to save, Christ is waiting to forgive. He died on the cross to save me, even me now you believe, etc. It is preferable that the congregation sing while the process is going on. The absolute necessity of faith is emphasized, just as in hypnotism it is understood that no effect can be produced without the willingness of the subject. If one person's suggestions fail, the workers take turns until conviction is finally implanted in the seeker's mind, and he acts upon it, accepts the power of Christ to save, and becomes an attitude at least, a new creature. The unconscious suggestions under such circumstances perhaps far outweigh the verbal ones. It will be readily seen that these methods are similar to those by which a subject is brought under the control of a hypnotist, and they have been the means of an untold amount of criminality when they have become the tool of ignorant or selfish persons. Professor Coe, in the research already referred to, has studied in detail the connection between the abruptness of religious experience. And suggestibility it will be remembered that he divided the subjects into three groups one persons who expected a transformation and experienced it two those who expected it but were disappointed and three those who belong to both the above classes of the fourteen cases in group one thirteen are the passive type of the twelve persons in group two nine clearly belong to the spontaneous type one, is entirely passive, and two, open to some doubt. From these results it appears highly probable that much of the phenomenal display of feeling in revivals is the sequence of hypnotic suggestion. Now, it cannot be too clearly pointed out that religious hypnotism is not an evil in itself. On the contrary, it is a valuable tool that nature has put in the hands of all persons who have to deal with people for the accomplishment of worthy ends. It is only in its abuse that it becomes an evil. We are coming to see that suggestion, which is not distinguishable from hypnotism, is the most efficient means in any sort of education. The wise teacher is the one who induces a right emotional attitude, and so directs the will in the direction of ideal conduct. It is coming to be calmly accepted that the therapeutics of suggestion, when administered under the direction of a physician, is a legitimate way of eradicating certain faults in children. It is coming into more general use, also, in the alleviation of diseases. Mall, in defending its use among physicians, goes as far to say, I believe with Kraft-Ebbing and Father Mueller and others that no important effect can be obtained in most functional neurosis without suggestion. I think that hardly any of the newest discoveries are so important to the art of healing, apart from surgery, as the study of suggestion. The conclusion that neither hypnotism nor suggestion will again disappear from the foreground in medicine is justified. This hope is grounded on the fact that there are in Germany a number of practical doctors, not carried away by enthusiasm, who study suggestion and do not look for hasty success and miraculous cures. The religious worker, who is a real psychologist, with high and pure motives, who possesses the tact and skill to free a soul through wise suggestion from the trammels that hold it within too narrow limits, and can set all its powers functioning in the direction of its normal growth, in so doing has not induced an artificial state in the mind of the subject. Hypnotic suggestion and suggestion out of hypnosis have the same aim, to determine the subject's will in a certain direction. Suggestion sets the conscious will in the right direction, as education does. The failure is only when the suggestion is out of the range of capacity and natural drift of the subject's consciousness. An unwise and unfortunate use of revivals is that they take certain social standards and attempt to force them indiscriminately on all persons alike. The notion is formed, and doubtless rightly, that the only means of escape for one whose evil habits are deeply ingrained is through repentance, a definite regeneration, and confession there seems to be practical ignorance of the other types of conversion An example sudden awakening following the sense of imperfection and still greater disregard of the fact that it is not natural for certain temperaments to develop spasmodically or even to exhibit marked stadia in their growth consequently the normal means of regeneration for the wayward and for hardened sinners becomes a dogma and is held up as the only means of escape for children for nature spiritually immature for the virtues and for those temperamentally unfit, a certain competition for supremacy among churches and for success among individual workers exaggerates the evil. Each new convert is sometimes vulgarly called by revivalists another star in the crowns which they will wear in their future life. If there were only power of discrimination, they would see that their success in dragging many so-called converts into the world of excitement hypnotizing them and leaving them empty afterward, is more fitly likened to the triumph of a man of prowess who wears scalps of victims as trophies. It is a significant fact that of the whole number of respondents who expressed an opinion, only two or three of those who had been through revival experiences spoke in unqualified terms of approval of the methods usually employed. There were a few of the number who condemned them severely. There was a general depreciation of the emotional pressure exerted and this, coming from the converts themselves, should be of value. A study of early conversions bears a similar testimony. If we take arbitrarily the ages of twelve for females and fourteen for males, and study the forces operating in all the conversions before those ages, we find that there are almost none on whom art emotional pressure was not exerted, or who were not influenced by strong suggestion and imitation. These are typical female eleven. I had deeply religious parents. I was always in some sense a Christian. A sermon by my father in childhood thoroughly frightened me, and its effect never left me. I was tormented by fears of being lost. Female 11. A deep impression was made on me by a story of a woman who died, saying, A million dollars for a moment of time. I was overcome by fear of sudden death. Female 11. My early life was as careless and happy as a bird's. The first time that religion seemed meant for me was at a revival, when Mr. M. preached on the crucifixion. He drew a vivid picture of it and told the congregation they had nailed him to the cross. My childish heart was broken. I felt I could do nothing to atone for making Christ suffer. May 11. It was mostly due to the influence of my seatmate. when he went to the altar, I thought. Why, if he can be a Christian, I can too. It should be remembered that these are among the number in which the experience was regarded by the respondent as a real conversion. The event may be genuine, regardless of the emotionalism and imitation involved. In fact, it may be largely due to it. The harmful results may be occasionally the inevitable waste that comes with work, the necessary sacrifice which goes along with activity in a social complex. Nevertheless, the picture is complete only if we keep in mind the large number who are wrecked through ignorance and indiscretion. The force of public opinion and the contagion which binds individuals into unity of action is one of the most formidable agencies all the way along. From its force among gregarious animals to that in the most evolved society, the stimulus of the ensemble renders the defenders of the herd among animals fearless of personal danger. It incites men to deeds of valor in battle. It arouses people in political crisis from indifference into vigorous action. But when this same irresistible force is focused on a young, tender soul that is just beginning to feel its way into clear light, that should still remain in childish innocence. It would be a perversion of nature which would be criminal, were it not covered by ignorance. The dangers of revivals cannot be more forcibly or more truly expressed than in the words of President David Starr Jordan, taken from a lecture delivered before the Psychic Society of Oakland. The lesson to us is that, one should be temperate in all things, that religion shows itself in lofty ideals steadily followed, in a clean life and in a pure heart. Sterile emotions are not religion, and hysteria of the same nature as drunkenness may be even more dangerous, because it is insidious, and because it may seem to come under the protection of the honored church. It is no attack on the religion to protest against the abuses which may creep into religious practice every honest clergyman knows that these excesses exist and in the degree that he is earnest he deplores them though he may not see how to avoid them this is the problem of his life work to be helpful only and not to even hurt the least of the little ones he cannot as has been said go clanging in stoga boots through the holy of holies he cannot delegate his duty to itinerant pretenders ignorant of right and careless of results I have here the card of a professional evangelist and comic elocutionist. His week's religious work in Santa Rosa is followed by an evening of side-splitting elocution, and the appended press notices testify to his excellence in both roles. On the back of the card, Dignan's corn-cure is advertised. This is the work of the crossroads of Fakir, not of the man of God. It is a gentle misuse of language to call such a man a quack. He is a criminal it is not an attack on religion to call crime or folly by its name the menace to the church comes from the use of its honoured name as a cloak for folly and selfishness because revivals of religion have been productive of endless good under wise hands is no reason why revivals of hysteria of sensationalism and sensualism should not receive the rebuke they merit it is certain that chronic religious excitement is destructive to the higher life the great efforts put forth to save the sinner should not be used as a means of dissipation for those who believe themselves to be saints. There is no right way for the development of all men. Each one must live his own life, pass through his own changes. He can be helped by others, but this help must be given to him wisely, and in this connection the work of the preacher has an importance few of us realize. He is to deal with the most delicate part of the nature of man the part that is most easily injured by bunglers, which can be most helped by the influence of true piety. To teach young men and women the way of life, we need the noblest, wisest, and purest men in the calling of the ministry. In the hands of the minister is the molding of souls for the long, sweet, helpful life that now is, and, as we hope, for the life that is to come. Our discussion must not end with the impression that revivals and evangelists are entirely responsible for the emotional excesses. We have seen that they only work on the peculiarities of temperament which belong to human nature, and which would probably assert themselves in some form without external inference. The evidence has already been sufficient that temperament is at the bottom of the deep depression and glowing experiences which attend conversion. Some of the most marked pathological tendencies are shown in persons who are let alone. Indeed, the fact of being left without any external stimulus seems often to be the very condition which aggravates the feelings until they become abnormal. This is beautifully illustrated in the following instance of a woman who passed through an intense storm and stress experience. Her conviction phenomena cannot be understood without taking into account her disposition and early surroundings. She relates that her mother was disappointed during pregnancy and at her birth and having a child, and showed her no tenderness. Through the unkindness of her parents, she learned to keep her feelings to herself. She describes herself as having been a naughty child, nervous, irritable, jealous, protesting, and a spitfire, but with it all she had a keen sense of justice and truthfulness. By ten she had a morbid conscience, which soon took a religious turn. Books and teachings, she says, led me to expect conversion teachings bewildered my mind. I wondered over doctrines and had misgivings about being one of the non-elect. At meeting I rose for prayers. I did not know how to be converted. I asked mother and she did not understand me. I went away to school. Another girl and I were troubled about our salvation. I found my first real comfort in finding in a book that God and not self was the proper object of contemplation. This was my first real insight and the first rush of feeling toward God. I joined the Church and was very active in religious work and in my anxiety for others and lived in an ardor of sanctity. I became much in love with the ideal of perfect surrender and perfection and read perfectionist books. I would lie in bed and think just of God, 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 with much sense of being shut in by divinity. The record so far and throughout bears evidence that the person belongs to the type of character designated by Professor Coe as the spontaneous or original. In fact, she says, in spite of great effort, I was little affected by ceremonial. Baptism, communion, and the like left me cold. My good moments were formless. She was pushed by older people into questionable extremes of piety, which were spasmodic. But doubt soon set in, and she became terrified at the idea of giving up her faith. And through fear of losing it, she cried, prayed, lost sleep and appetite, and suffered from blues and depression. Calamity suddenly fell. It shook my faith in God and man. Searching misery came in successive ways. Benevolent purpose in the world seemed gone. For years I didn't know a moment free from mental misery. I was in extreme depth of disbelief. Night after night I went out into the dark, crying out to the life that dwelt in the universe to help me. I felt absolutely aloof from everything, a broken thing. I said to myself as to something above me, I will never believe in one inch beyond what my coldest thinking tells me is most probable. On thinking how the world consciousness might be even blinder and less organized than our own, I gave up search after God. I no longer cared even to die. This case bears clear evidence of organic and temperamental conditions underlying its varied experiences. The point to be noticed in this connection is how the experiences become automatically cumulative so that no matter in what direction development starts it carries itself on to the limit of expression beginning with a nervous irritable nature a tendency to seclusion of feeling and a morbid conscious we have in one direction a searching for a way of escape each idea starts a fresh wave of experience and each experience in turn leads to a fresh striving or when the tide sets in the opposite direction a corresponding series of steps leads from bad to worse doubt deepens the despair and despair in turn increases the doubt she progressively walks, talks, and cries herself down to the point of death. It is important to note that doubt preceded the consciousness of it, and she was alarmed at its coming. The cumulative effect of the experience is perhaps due to the interplay between the organic states and ideas. A physiological condition awakens the consciousness of its presence, and the idea induces a deepening of the somatic resonance. The respondent herself describes the misery as coming in successive waves, Sensation and idea constantly interact, and each augments the other, until some external event breaks the chain, or until the limit of endurance is reached. One sees the same tendency in a small way in the frightened horse, which becomes more frightened as it runs, or in the hurt child, who cries because he is hurt, and then cries worse because he has cried. We have here, then, another great highway along which religious experiences sweep themselves beyond the limits of the normal and become pathological a certain initiative of religious ecstasy or of guilt combined with an element of originality and temperament tends to become automatically cumulative until the emotional state chases everything but itself out of the field of consciousness end of chapter thirteen